0: I'm Chris Gerbath, and this is American Storyteller. Mick Untie and his family turned their passion into wine and turned their wine into a family business. They own and operate Unti Vineyards in an area called Dry Creek in California's Sonoma County. What goes into making a great bottle of wine? Nick's going to give us an insider's knowledge of wine and the wine business and how great wine making traditions of the past inform their present and their future.
1: we have to choose a grape variety for the climate in europe they didn't have that choice and i think that's been undoubtedly any success we have has been a synthesis of our knowledge of the wines from those regions and having enough confidence because we have that knowledge in planting those grapes in dry creek and then being able to recognize whether they're credible or not that's that's what we do
0: Tell me about your hometown.
1: Well, I grew up in uh, San Jose until I was 16. You know, growing up in San Jose, San Jose was a little bit less complicated than it is now. San Jose, California, you know, is a pretty busy place these days, thanks to Silicon Valley. And, and the fact that uh, suburban growth just was sort of unchecked there in the 60s and 70s. And then when my dad, uh, my dad worked for Safeway, so they started, you know, they transferred him up to Seattle, and I moved up to Seattle when I was 16, and that's where I finished high school and went to college.
0: What was family life like when you were growing up? Fairly traditional?
1: No, my, I have two younger sisters. My folks got divorced when I was 15. So, you know, we kind of were at the early stages of what is pretty, I mean, my experience was kind of common to what a lot of people experience today but it was not as common then you know and I think you know so my my dad moved up to Seattle in when I was 16 and I you know I, I just kind of felt like that was the right thing for me to do living in San Jose in the 70s was definitely an opportunity to get into trouble but I played sports but even then you know like everybody <laughs> all of the right. sports teams all the players were just as bad or worse than the people who were not considered, you know, that we're playing sports in terms of partying or things that you were doing. Where did you end up at college and what did you take a degree in? So I went to UW and um, uh, University of Washington and um, I always was interested in political science on a number of levels, but particularly international relations in political science and University of Washington had a pretty decent program in political science and especially in international relations. And so that was my major. But then, you know, when you go to universities like Washington or you know anything in the UC system here in California, you're required to take quite a few other classes. And I I took I remember taking the communications, which was connected with journalism and media as one of my necessary requirements and loved it. And so I ended up getting a double major because I really wanted to, you know, I had taken so many classes in political science that I qualified for a major of poli sci, but I was really more interested in broadcast journalism or broadcast communications.
0: We'll get to how you got into wine here in a
1: minute, but where
0: did the Unti name
1: come from? (laughs) (laughs) It comes from, I mean, it's it's a, my, it's my dad's, last name, obviously, and his dad came to California from Tuscany. So the part of Tuscany that my grandfather came from is just outside of Lucca. In fact, we make a wine that's named after the village that he's from called Segrominio. Uh, my grandfather came in just post-World War One. That was that unusual. I think after World War One, a lot of uh, Italians decided to blow. You know, through economic destitution, really, you know, the only reason you would ever move this far from a place like Italy, you know, especially Tuscany, pretty nice place to have, you know, all things considered. But the only reason you would do that is if you needed the money. I mean, it's really plain and simple. So I think I think a fair amount of Italians emigrated after World War I, and my grandfather was one of them.
0: And your grandfather went into farming in California, right?
1: Yeah, he moved out to California because he had a brother who had already done that. And he had cousins who had already done that and friends. And he, he went up to uh, Fort Bragg and worked in the logging industry, doing the jobs that are high risk, low pay jobs that immigrants do and got enough money to buy property down in uh, Madeira.
0: So was winemaking something your family brought with them from Italy? No.
1: Uh, I mean, other than my grandfather making, you know, some homebrew off of his property in Madeira when my dad was growing up. No, it's not. I mean, and he, you know, I don't think it has anything to do with <laughs> with what we do other than he, he made Zinfandel, which we also make. But no, it was, uh, I think my dad got into wine when he was in college and as a young adult, and I did the same thing. So we both you know got into wine at a relatively early age you know wine from the standpoint of wanting to know more about it and wanting to pursue interesting wines from interesting places and then how did you get into the wine business i got into the wine business working retail so i really wine making was sort of a a long end to just working in the wine business i worked for a small winery doing national sales not small but a, a known unknown winery in Mendocino County called McDowell Valley Vineyards. I worked for them for five years doing national sales and marketing, and then worked for Kendall Jackson for six years doing national sales for their smaller wine brands that were actually much larger than our our little winery. I'm really more from the sales and marketing background than anything connected with winemaking. But while I was at Kendall Jackson, I traveled quite a bit with winemakers because my brands were the ones that needed more rudimentary development in the marketplace than Kendall Jackson did. So I traveled with folks like Dave Guffey, who was the winemaker at Cambria, or Steve Test, who was the winemaker at, at Stone Street. So I learned quite a bit about winemaking just being close to those guys.
0: And so the story of the winery really begins with your father, George.
1: Yeah, in the sense that he and his wife, Linda, purchased property in Dry Creek Valley in 1990. At that time, I was still working for the winery in Mendocino County called McDowell. And my dad purchased 20 acres in Dry Creek Valley, about a quarter mile away from where the winery is, as a, he and Linda were sort of planning for retirement. And I think both Linda and my dad really wanted to retire relatively young. So, they purchased this property in Dry Creek Valley and it had some vines on it. But my dad planted Syrah in 1991 and then he planted Sangiovese, sort of an homage to his roots in Tuscany. And by then, he'd already visited his cousins in Tuscany several times before he planted that vineyard. So, that was in 91 and 92. He also had Zinfandel on the property. So, we started home winemaking from that property in 95. And, you know, we thought it was really cool and he was really, ex- he was really excited about both of us were really excited about doing it. it was a fun sort of hobby project to do. And so, yeah, that was definitely the, uh, you know, if it weren't for that, there's no doubt I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I, I, I also was tired of kind of traveling around a lot. So, you know, I had worked in a national sales position for almost 10 years, a little over 10 years. And you know that get if you've ever done that, <laughs> that gets old sooner than ten years.
0: <laughs> right, right. And, you know,
1: unless you, especially if you have any family or you know, and I have two daughters who were born in um, 1996 and 97. So the the idea of traveling around the country had lost its appeal to me.
0: One of Unti's characteristics is Mediterranean-style wine. Can you explain what that means and really what is Unti's North Star?
1: um you know it's it's really probably born out of a mutual love of European wine between my dad and I. you know we are mildly obsessed with great wines from all regions of Europe, just as it's just how our you know how our wine enthusiasm or being wine enthusiasts, it's how our paths you know, not only cross, but we, we you know, we really share a love of wine from specific places that really represent the top end or the a great example of whatever those varieties in that region represent. So having that common bond and also with my dad having traveled to Italy and I, I had traveled to France, and Italy, with two trips with my dad and and Linda, and our interests were piqued by Southern Rhone, Provence, Northern Rhone, North, uh, Piemonte, Tuscany. You know those wine. We've been to those regions, and you know once you travel in Europe and you taste wines in, especially Southern France and and Northern Italy or anywhere in Italy, it's so provincial that you just can't help but get excited about. If you have any interest in wine, you, you really understand the connection to a, a geographical place that these wines have. And so the fact that we already shared a love of Mediterranean wine, when my dad was considering what to plant, he knew enough to plant things that would be compatible with the climate of Dry Creek. And that's a big, big part of what we do. I mean, that's the main part of what we do is select grape varieties that would perform really well in our climate. And that that distinguishes us from maybe the way commercial winemaking evolved in the 70s and 80s, because we're not just picking the world's most famous grape varieties and seeing if they do okay in Dry Creek which they do. So Cabernet and Merlot and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, they all do pretty well in Dry Creek. And in fact, there's a lot more of that planted than any of the goofy things that we have planted. But is Dry Creek considered a climate like Bordeaux? No way. Is it a climate like Loire Valley? Not even close. Is it a climate like Burgundy? Not close at all. Is it a climate like Southern France and Northern Italy? Yeah, because the same things grow there. Rosemary, lavender, citrus, olives, which we have 100-plus olive trees, they all grow wildly in the regions that we've selected grape varieties from. And so what that enables us to do is, you know, we have to choose a grape variety for the climate. In Europe, they didn't have that choice. And I think that's been undoubtedly any success we have has been a synthesis of our knowledge of the wines from those regions and having enough confidence, because we have that knowledge, in planting those grapes in Dry Creek and then being able to recognize whether they're credible or not. That's that's what we do.
0: So you started making wine as a hobby, and then it turned into a commercial enterprise. Was there a moment in your winemaking that you knew you had it, that you just nailed it?
1: Uh, you know... I still don't think we've nailed it. <laughs> so, to answer in a word, no, I don't, I don't think there was a moment. I mean, I think that part of what I respect is the fact that, you know, it start, this started as kind of a hobby thing with my dad and I. And so, you know, I mean, I think what happens is the same thing that happens in other forms of life where you follow your passion and it's something that's interesting. And then you just want to get better at it. Every year happens and you say, oh, what could we have done to do this, that, or the other? So, you know, when we first started making Sangiovese in 1995 and 96 and 97, we were inspired by these really great versions of Sangiovese. And the first homemade Sangiovese vintages were anything but that. They were thin and shrill and, you know, they were low in acid, but they had bitter green tannin and they were oxidized. And other than that, they were really great. (laughs) you know we're you know we were totally disappointed by that and wanted to know well how did how is it that we could be failing so miserably with a grape that should do well in dry creek valley so we had to really learn a lot from italian winemakers and visiting you know somebody has to go visit and learn and yeah and my dad and his wife go to italy used to go to italy once or twice a year so you know we we learned a lot more about How to manage crop levels and how that applies to high quality Sangiovese, how it applies to high quality Grenache. So it's been a learning process over many, many years. And I'd say we probably really started to hit our stride much more in 2012 and post those years. But we had to learn how to really refine and and apply high-quality grape-growing strategies. That That's now where we're at. So are we closer to nailing it today? Absolutely, positively. Are, are we completely nailed it? I don't know, probably not.
0: <laughs> the leaders of your business are you and your family. How do you balance the needs of the business with family life?
1: You really have to learn how to... Operate your personal life and your business life without blowing all of that up when you're in a family business. I think to me that's the biggest challenge, and I, I'm not sure I'm really great at it. Um, and I imagine most people would say the same thing that they're not that great at it because it's so hard. You know, if you know my wife and I work together, but I mean, it's not that it doesn't. It's not like it's easy, and I'm sure she. I'm sure, I'm guessing we would probably be happier if we were pursuing our own professional interests, you know, without the burden of this big, fa- you know, of this family business that kind of permeates your life 24-7. So I don't, you know, I, and I also thought it was, you know, I mean, my I consider my dad and I over the years really as close as father, son, or pretty pretty close to as close as Father, son could be, but operating in a business is a different thing. You could have days where you walk in and say, Hey, how's it going? And 35 minutes later, you're pointing your finger in each other's chest saying, you know, you've always been like this. And, <laughs> and so, and I, and I'm telling you, I mean, I wish I were better at it when we first started. You know, I'm, I, I wish I were better at it to this day. You know, it's easy for me to get amped up in a conversation, and I think being in a family business, you really have to be careful of your relationships because it's just a business. You know, you, you have if uh, there was a great scene in uh, Bjorn Borg McEnroe documentary where McEnroe's is flying off the handle and you know doing his McEnroe thing, and Borg comes up to the net and looks at and points waves at him to come up to the net and McEnroe's pissed off. So he finally comes up to the net and Borg looks at him and goes, hey man, it's it's just a game. <laughs> and and I you know, I wish that I had the temerity or the presence of mind to remember that every single time you're in a difficult conversation in a family business. I mean, I do think that there are some really great benefits. I think my wife and I look at a lot of things the same way. I think my dad and I for sure look at we all, all of us have this goal of respecting quality and respecting the longer term options versus the shorter term options. So we're all lucky that we at least agree on those fundamental aspects of a family business. But the day to day operating in a family business, is it, I don't know how, no, no other way to say it, it's a challenge.
0: living with climate change, especially in California, you have a long-running drought and more severe wildfires than ever before. Is there anything going on with climate change that is flavoring your plans for the future?
1: Yeah, um, not particularly because in terms of the grapes that we've planted, we've already, we, we're ahead of that game. I mean, not, anybody who's trying to replant their vineyards to grape varieties that might be able to withstand a warmer climate, all they'd have to do is look at us and they've got a choice of 12 different varieties that would absolutely thrive. For example, last year <laughs> in 2020, we had, you know, smoke all over us and 112 degree weather in the first part of September, and we harvested Vermentino, Grenache, Blanc, Fiano and Pick And we ended up making really, really good wine from those things. in. Absolutely, the least likely conditions because it was so miserable. And if those varieties would perform in 2020, they're going to perform in any Armageddon like conditions that climate change or warm global warming can throw at us. So from that standpoint, I'd say we are already positioned for that. Where it gets totally impossible for me to answer is I don't know what to do anymore if we have another fire like last year. We've learned a lot, a tremendous amount. We're still learning about what smoke and smoke does to your your wines. But that doesn't mean we can do anything about it. (laughs) I mean, you know, if the fires happen again next year in August, which the likelihood for the rest of my lifetime, the likelihood of that happening in California is high. So I don't know what to say about that other than maybe get out of that business there's really nothing we could do about a fire happening and impacting our grapes. Uh, there's literally not, You could say, okay, well, how do we deal with power outages that are a manifestation of global warming? Well, yeah, we can get generators and we can do all this and that. And even then, I don't like the idea of doing that. But in terms of, you know, if global warming or if climate change is manifesting in these ridiculous weather events, whether it's flooding or hot weather or hot weather that results in fires or droughts that result result in fires or droughts that restrict the amount of water we can use to process grapes or restrict the amount of water we can use in our vineyard. I don't know what to do about that other than just get out of it. I mean, that's a, (laughs) it's a dark answer, but, but I mean, I really, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, Maybe I'm just not smart enough to to figure that out, but I just, I don't know what to do about that.
0: So you mentioned smoke along with the high heat in 2020. What did you learn that year about the effect of smoke on the grapes?
1: Well, 2020 was our my only year of, of experiencing, and you know we realized that you know making tough decisions about certain grape varieties and making them rosé instead of red. Like last year, we made a tough decision with our best Mourvedre that goes into cuvee Foudre, and without that batch of wine, we can't make cuvee foudre because cuvee foudre is dependent on a good good dose of high quality Melvedra. But we made the tough decision that, hey, we don't know what's going to happen to this Melvedra four weeks from now if we harvest it for red or three weeks from now if we harvest it for red. So we're harvesting it now for rosé because at least when you make rosé, you can press the juice off the skins, thereby minimizing, if not eliminating, your risk of the smoke impacting the wine. And imagine my surprise, we made the best rosé. <laughs> you know, when you use your best Movedre, it makes your best rosé. And, and that's awesome. I mean, that's really, that was a good example of what we're supposed to do as winemakers is make these decisions on the spot, on the fly, based on your experience.
0: When it comes to building on the work that you've done, what would you say are the biggest opportunities for you and Unti in the years ahead?
1: That's a good question. Um I, you know, I think uh, we have a situation where we, we really have a, a fantastic winemaker. His name is Jason Valenti, and I really trust Jason implicitly. He's a hard worker. He does, you know, he just does the right thing. You know, I can I can always trust him to do the right thing. And our wines, I think, today are better than they've ever been as a result of his work with my dad's vineyard guys you know, my dad manages the vineyard and, and then Jason works with my dad and all of the vineyard crew. And I'm very proud that it's easily the best hire I've ever uh, done in my lifetime. And so we have this resource of where we have a, a good raw material and the grapes that we grow and we have a really great Person who facilitates all that, and Jason Valenti. And you know, now we're probably at the stage of our business where we could use, you know, some updating of the facility, and then maybe we would just start pursuing more specific categories. I mean, you could take eight or nine of the things that we do, and you know, and and ramp up the production, and really specifically market those types of wines and really be very very successful in California we've just done you know we haven't done that we've just done a lot of things but I'm not that you know it's not like I'm not that ambitious about making vermentino a 75,000 case a year item a we don't have the permits to do that and b I don't know if I have the the energy to to make that happen in a sales capacity but I would see that, you know, maybe uh, the future would be that we get more refined about the best wines we make and try to make that be more of what everybody else knows us for. So I think that, you know, like I said, the future would be sort of taking what we've accomplished and moving it up to another level and possibly narrowing down the number of things that we do. Uh, But it's it's born out of this um, mutual love of wine that my dad and I have.
0: I want to thank Mick Unti for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at www.storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller.